Welcome, everyone. We are so excited that Ryan Delk is joining us today on the show. Perhaps relevant to this conversation, he let me know that he was homeschooled from kindergarten through eighth, currently in the San Francisco Bay Area, as he said. And I will now turn it over to Matt to get into the super interesting questions. Thanks, Dagny. And thanks, Ryan, for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Excited for this. So I'm just going to, I've actually now heard you, I, I listened to some podcasts with you before this, and I, I was at a conference with you recently, so I'm going to ask you to tell a story that I've actually heard you tell like four or five times now, um, just nice. because it's so good. So so Dagny just mentioned that you were homeschooled growing up. Can you just tell us a little bit about that and your experience and kind of what you got from it? Totally. Yes. I've had a kind of interesting educational story. So my mom was a public school teacher actually in Atlanta and interestingly was very anti-homeschooling, anti-alternative education, wrote a paper when she was getting her teaching degree on why homeschooling should be illegal. And we moved to Orlando for my dad's work and we sort of inadvertently moved into a very bad school district and she took me to kindergarten orientation and she realized she couldn't leave me there. And they would sort of destroy this sort of like love of learning that she had been cultivating in me. I was the oldest, I had a younger brother and a younger sister. And so she decided to, we didn't have any money, so sort of private school was not an option. And so she basically decided just sort of on, on the fly kind of to figure out homeschooling. She thought she'd homeschool me for a year. We'd save some money, move to a better school district, figure something out. And she ended up homeschooling me and my two younger siblings all kindergarten through eighth grade. So we can dive into more of sort of like what that experience was like and some of the unique things about it. But I have a ton of respect for her for sort of changing her mind in light of new data. And it was something that I'm incredibly thankful for and has inspired a lot of my work at Primer, the education I want my kids to have, and kind of how I think about what sort of a new education system could look like in the U.S. Yeah, and that mind shift that your your mother went through is like in a microcosm, a mind shift that I feel like has been happening culturally. Like I was a kid in the 80s and 90s, and homeschooling had a really bad rep. I mean, I think I just saw this tweet by, who was it? Keith Oberman or somebody some, somebody like that, who was like responding to somebody. And he, he was like, you should be arrested for homeschooling. You've ruined your kids for, for homeschooling or something like that. He was talking totally. to a mom. And like part of my reaction to it was just like, this is just not how people think about it anymore. There's been a real yeah. sea change. And like, can you just say something about that? Like, I mean, how much of that is the pandemic and how much of it is just like, it's a long time coming and dissatisfaction with the traditional system and like what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I felt, so this was the sort of like early 90s, and I, I felt this even back then. When we started being homeschooled, it's hard to get real data on this back then, but there was probably about 200,000 homeschoolers in the entire U.S. So you imagine in Florida, maybe there was like five, 10,000, maybe 15,000 homeschoolers across the entire state. So this was by no means a mainstream thing. It was still in its infancy as a movement. And so we we had all sorts of, my mom would like send us into the grocery store at age 10 to like get groceries because so we could learn how the world worked. And I'd get I have five different people asking me like why I wasn't in school. Yeah. So it was a very sort of like odd thing at that point. But I remember by the time I got into middle school, it was much, I even sort of like can remember experiencing that shift where it was more normalized. I had more friends that were homeschooled. It wasn't as weird of a thing. And then I think over the last 15, 20 years since then, I think what's happened is two things. One is I think there's been a sort of technology has, has empowered more parents. Like my mom literally would go through physical curriculum, you know, yeah. fairs to go yeah. sort through bins of books to find like the curriculum every single year to find the curriculum that we'd be using for next year or like calling like a mail order catalog to get the curriculum delivered. So the, the internet has just totally transformed the, the sort of, in terms of empowering parents 
to be able to provide an education for their kids. And the second thing that's happened is I think that public schools in the 90s, maybe we had 30, 40, 50 years of data on like what the sort of like modern public school system was generating in terms of outcomes. And I think you've seen spending increase in a lot of states and a lot of districts, outcomes either flat or down. And I think more and more parents are just saying, hey, like this, you know, this thing isn't working. I, I like sort of sort of the verdict is, is in, like, I'm, I don't want to be a part of it. And I think those two things have sort of contributed to what now I would say is, you know, even pre-pandemic, I was sort yeah. of on its way to becoming something that's, you know, more or less mainstream. Yeah. And they intersect a bit too, just because, I mean, part of what the internet has done is enabled parents to do cool things at homeschooling. And another part of what the internet has done is enabled kind of alternative discourse. And like, so like homeschooling parents, like connect with one another and people, people who are critical of public schools or just even not public schools, just traditional education, even, even in its private form have kind of really found a voice and come together over the last 20 years, I think. So that's a good transition. The internet is a good transition for you to tell us a little bit about Primer. So what is it? (laughs) Yeah. So Primer started actually, my wife and I started having kids uh, a few years ago And I just sort of assumed that someone had built either like an internet native version of the education that I had, or there was just like going to be amazing schools all across the country that I could get access to, you know, and send my kids to. And I was sort of stunned that even in a city like San Francisco, where we live, there really like weren't any options. There were sort of the the ultra high end private schools that cost $50,000 a year. And, you know, sort of the goal is to get your kid into Harvard, which I had no interest in. And then there were some interesting like sort of pockets of alternative education institutions around the Bay Area, but nothing that was like convenient for us. And then on the internet, there was, it was still really, I mean, it's basically Khan Academy, a few sort of like niche sites. And so honestly, I just, I I felt like, okay, you know, this doesn't exist. Like I need to, someone needs to build this. I want it to exist for my kids. I don't think anyone else is going to build it. And I actually started by trying to find other founders that I could just invest in and have them build this because I figured this is going to be really hard, but I really want this to exist. And then that just sort of ended in maybe three years ago, my co-founder and I talking and realizing like, hey, this really needs to exist for the world. And so sort of what we landed on was this idea of creating an internet native, basically a place on the internet where any kid can find sort of their tribe, their crew of kids that also share the interests that they share and go deep on those interests together. And so whether it's like reading or writing or coding or art or whatever the thing is that you're excited about, microbiology, being able to find other kids that share those interests and then as, as deep as you want to go, whether it's writing a book together and publishing on Amazon, whether it's, you know, meet up to, to critique your art and get better as an artist, whatever it might be, you have this sort of like like-minded group of other kids in a space that takes kids seriously, gives them agency, and is really inspired by and sort of, I think, congruent with a lot of the, the, sort of the foundations of the Montessori movement and yeah. sort of in yeah. this like sort of online form. And so that's, that's sort of been the vision of Primer with the eventual goal of hoping to find a way to bring that into the offline world and eventually sort of create some experiences that, that kids can have access to, sort of a replacement to the traditional system, but sort of starting online and then going offline eventually. Yeah, and is the idea, so if you just kind of start with a blank slate and think about homeschooling, like there's a lot that goes into that, right? There's like everything yep. from like, oh, sh- sh- I've got to teach my kid how to read. I don't know how to do that. Like everything from the kind of like like basics to like, I want my child to have friends and interests and I want my child to have like a community of some kind. And like, I have my house in my neighborhood and where in that kind of multidimensional problem space do you see primer sitting? Like, it sounds like it's definitely solving a social problem. And then like, there's kind of different things that you could do with this kind of club like community thing. Some of which could involve like deep core learning. Like, I mean, a writing club, you can do a lot with that. And some of which might be like, I think of the things that I did when I was in elementary school that I really love, like Boy Scouts or Odyssey of the Mind or these kind of science fair type things that, that it's like a kind of online platform for that sort of thing. Like, how do you kind of situate it in the kind of space of like education happening at home? 
Totally. I'll answer that directly. And then there's an interesting correlation to that. So I think the thing that we found and that was my experience was like the core curriculum stuff. It was much harder when, when I was being homeschooled, but it was sort of like doable. You could find, you know, a great writing curriculum yeah. or math curriculum or whatever. But the really hard part was like, hey, you know, actually you can do most of the core academics in like two hours a day or three hours a day. <laughs> yeah. And then you have the rest of the day and you have kids that are, you know, energetic and curious and how do you structure that time sort of to, to sort of to help them flourish as humans? And I think that is the question that I think a lot of parents sort of struggle with. And the default might be something like video games or, you know, playing Minecraft or whatever it might be. And I think that for us, what we found is that, especially with the internet now, there's really great science curriculums and math curriculums and, you know, reading curriculums. And, you know, you can find different styles and different things that might fit your own sort of personal philosophy about learning or about the world or whatever. But what's really difficult is like, hey, if your kid is like randomly, you know, super into 16th century, you know, English literature, like it's actually very difficult as a parent. It takes an, an insane amount of effort. And this is what my mom spent a ton of time doing, creating sort of like the treadmill for their mind where they can just, you know, sort of go as fast as they want on this journey of this, this subject or this interest that they're excited about. And if you think about things like coding that many parents, you know, today are like not equipped to have any, any understanding of at all, those kind of things I think are just very difficult for parents and, and require an insane amount of effort. And so the online version of Primer uh, sort of primer clubs, the goal of that, maybe in a very overly simplistic view, is, is to, to sort of abstract that, that work away from the parent and say, hey, whatever your kid's interested in, they can spend time on primer. We exist to help to sort of to empower human flourishing, to help them have you know, positive experiences with other kids. This is not a video game. This is like a sort of a healthy way for them to spend time online. The second thing that you said that I think is important, and maybe this is to take the, you know, if there's a bare case for homeschooling, to be sort of intellectually honest, <laughs> yeah. I think it's that most families, the structure, the reality of America today is that I think a lot of families are not in a position to have one parent sort of stay home full time with their kids, either because it's a single family home or a dual income household or for whatever reason. And I think that is sort of this, this structural barrier to homeschooling moving from 4% or 5% of the US school age population to 25 or 30%. And so we talked about the online version of Primer. The offline version of Primer, long-term, is to try to remove that barrier for families. And so for families that want an alternative education, who want their kids to have sort of a homeschool-like experience where they can go deep on these subjects, it's really about creating that same type of space, but doing it in a way where they don't have to have you know, one parent staying home with their kids full-time. And I think, you know, I think homeschooling will continue to grow. I'm, I'm sort of I'm a bull on homeschooling, but I think yeah, there is yeah. a structural thing that just makes it really challenging. Yeah, I want to stay on the pedagogy, but I because I have some questions about what you just said. But yes, I, I just I can't resist asking. Did you, you started primer before the pandemic, right? Three yep. years ago, you said. So I mean, I'm just super curious in terms of the arc of what you've seen. I mean, I assume that COVID was a huge accelerant for you, but I mean, what like what are you seeing now? Like, I, I have this. I'm also bullish on homeschooling, but I have this fear that it's like wishful thinking that it's like, yeah, like there's, there's going to be regression to the mean and yeah. you know, like in a few years, like maybe some of these bills, you know, encouraging alternative education and homeschooling and microschooling will still exist, but nobody's using them. Like, what are you actually seeing on the ground in terms of usage? Are you still seeing like a lot of kind of burgeoning growth and interest and in a sustainable way? Yeah, so definitely, yes, on, on sort of a sustainable growth. I mean, obviously there was a huge wave as part of the school closures in COVID that you know, we'll never see again in terms of this, this sort of slope of the curve. But I think what's interesting to me, my theory on this, which I think is like very under-discussed, and I may be contrarian, is that the most important part of COVID was not like schools getting shut down or kids being stuck at home or any of these things that like people talk about. It was actually that the legibility, the average parent, their kid's school experience was much more legible to them than it ever had been before. Because regardless of the fact that it was happening on Zoom, it still a, was a sort of like one-to-one -one mapping of what would be happening in the classroom in terms of how they were spending their time. And so I think the average parent, 
rather than the, the primary way in which they understand their kids' education being a report card twice a year, a couple parent-teacher conferences, and whatever, you know, three sentences you get at the dinner table about when you ask them how school was, all of a sudden you had a front row seat to everything, that, all the way the teachers were interacting with them, the things they were learning, how much time was, you know, potentially wasted, you know, the amount of time they were bored or sort of just like uninterested. And I think the parents sort of like had some sort of handicap on that experience because they knew it was on Zoom and it wasn't as immersive and whatever. But I think most parents just realized like, hey, this is, you know, I didn't know that this was how the, this, this sort of education, this, this day, this experience was structured. And so my view is that legibility increased. And then for some subset of parents that are maybe higher agency or, you know, whatever, whatever their sort of posture towards their kids' education might be, that catalyzed what will, in retrospect, you know, 10 years from now, look like a permanent shift, sort of a step function in alternative education, and then sort of a permanent shift upward in terms of the slope of the curve of adoption of alternative education. So I think, you know, we've already seen the step function and sort of increase that happened over COVID. I think some of that has staying power. And then I think the permanent shift will be sort of this, you know, faster adoption moving forward. But of course, I don't think that like the public school system and the traditional school system is just going to evaporate overnight. I think it's much more likely that it sort of degrades at, say, 1% a year for the next 50 years. And then it does have some sort of like fall of Rome moment where in six years, it's sort of like, you know, we blink and the public school system is, you know, no more. Yeah. So I definitely think that the legibility was a big, I mean, what went in March of 2020 and April and, and May when, when schools were first closing, that was actually what a lot of the coverage was like. It, it stopped being like that, but a lot of the coverage was like, look, even a good version of this would be bad is what yep. parents are realizing. It's like, like they see the kind of schedule of the day. It's like you, like you go from kind of 30 minute chunk to 30 minute chunk to 30 minute. Like this doesn't make sense. And it's mind numbing for eight hours. And, and then this gets us back to the thing you were saying when you were talking about the kind of function of primer in the, in the homeschooling landscape. I mean, it is this kind of dirty secret of education that in terms of like core academics, you can get what you need to get done in a two or three hours a day. And then there's this, I mean, first of all, there's just kind of stating that and recognizing that, which I think would surprise a lot of people. But I also think it, this is one of those things that's like, it's like a commonplace in education, like people kind of, everybody kind of knows it, but nobody really wants to say it. And so then as your thesis, something like you get the core academics in for a couple hours a day, use the best curriculum available. But the question is like, what should children be doing to develop and to build their character and to develop habits and to develop interests outside of that space? The thing that we think is best is some sort of club-like structure where students can kind of connect positively over some sort of ambitious learning that interests them. Is that the, and that that's going to kind of set them up to like, oh, interest and develop learning habits. Is that the idea or I'm just trying to kind of like pin yeah. you down to a pedagogical thesis. So. Yeah. So I think, I think clubs are sort of like in an online environment. If you think about, you know, the internet native, there's the sort of restrictions of being an internet native experience. You can't be in person for most kids. I think that sort of our organization of clubs is, is at least that we found so far, the best approximation for what I think the dream experience would be, which is that you could snap your fingers and you could have 10 kids that are all around you in a room, in a beautiful room that have maybe an age gap of five to seven years between them that are all excited about the same thing. And you can just spend hours a day, like working on these projects and asking questions and going to original sources. I think that sort of primer clubs aim to be an internet native approximation of that that sort of removes geographic boundaries and allows kids to find these kids. And so I think at our best and, and the sort of long-term goal is that we're almost like a matchmaking system for kids finding that one other person or three other people that share that interest and they want to go deep with. And so that's, that I think is like sort of like the dream. And it's honestly, it's born out of like what my mom fought for, for me, which was like constantly find other families that had those kids that were interested in the same things I were. So I think in some ways, like 
online will, will always be from a from a kid to kid interaction perspective potentially a, a sort of like slightly it's, it's like less immersive than being in person but i think the power of it is that we can connect kids anywhere without these, these geo restrictions and so i think that's you know yeah. beholden to who's in your school district for example and how much does it matter to you i assume that there's kind of a fair amount of variance in terms of i mean are you like setting up clubs or approving clubs or are these things that people create on your platform or how does it work? Yeah, so we do t- three things. We have primer hosted clubs. We have okay. clubs that we where we give our tools to third parties. So we are soon announcing a very large chess club, for example, with a huge chess organization that's going to be sort of like, like the best place on the internet for any kid who wants to go deep in chess with other kids who love chess. And then we also have kid hosted clubs. And so kids can sort of apply, say, hey, I want to create a club around this specific thing. So there's this like very niche type of Japanese art that some kids are really passionate about. So they created a club around it and almost every day they get together and share their work and critique it and get feedback. And sometimes they ask like experts to come in. And so that's like a, that's, that's an example of sort of like kids taking, taking agency and ownership. So those are the three ways that club exists on Primer. Long-term, yeah. we want as many possible sort of third parties coming in and building on the platform because we can't be experts in every interest, obviously. And yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of what I was going to ask. So, so what I was going to ask is like, how much do you care about the structure of the club? So you could imagine a club where it's like, 10 kids getting together and kind of like talking about some topic in a relatively unstructured way because they're interested in it. But it, it's not that different from the kind of learning that they might kind of like do on the internet and discover on their own and discover in a chat room. Or you can imagine like a chess club where there's like, no, there's like a real structure to this. Like you're a novice, you come in, there's certain recommended lessons that you do or books that you read, or there's a book list or something, even something like the Boy Scouts where there's like merit badges, and but it has this kind of club-like feel. Like there's a totally. whole lot of different kinds of pedagogical things that can happen in clubs? Do you have kind of, I mean, it sounded like from what you were saying in terms of getting third parties building on the platform that you actually do like it when there's a kind of expert structure kind of underpinning the club. Is that right? Yeah, I think we are. So our view is that, and this sort of ties into the pedagogy. So we, we, we're not sort of like, I think there's some schools or a thought that are sort of radical on like kids self-organizing, Yeah, you know, having like being in these high agency environments and sort of like, you know, waiting to see what happens. We think those environments are valuable, but also should be paired with structured environments with experts or, or fantastic content that helps kids progress through something they're excited about. And so I would say the ideal for any primer kid is they have you know four or five clubs that are hopefully eventually run by third parties who are world-class at what they do, or they can sort of have structured progress in chess or speech and debate or writing or art, or whatever the thing is. And then they have four or five kid-hosted clubs that they either are a part of, or maybe one of them they co-lead, that are some you know either niche interests or just sort of a splinter off of a main club. And that allows them to have that sort of like high agency experience where they're creating the norms and figuring out how to you know handle dissent and all these kind of things within their own community. So I think that that combination, I think, is like, you know, at five years from now, if there's a couple million kids that are having that experience, that's what success looks like. That's awesome. And do you kind of see yourselves as evaluating third parties like like do you have standards by which you're like yes like this is pedagogically excellent or oh this seems this seems kind of like more flashcard like or or more standard or is it like is it kind of like you know it when you see it or you're not there yet or like how much how much kind of substance to the pedagogy are you kind of like how how opinionated are you yeah right now we we haven't developed like right now it's very one-off based so we have maybe seven to ten partners that we know are good fits that are interested that we have the resources we'll bring on we're starting with chess because it felt like the right combination of alignment plus a massive yeah. demand. So right now it's more of a, you know, we, we know when we see it. These are people we've, in most cases, we've known for a long time. They've been part of the primer journey and they've been excited to work with us whenever we open these up. But at some point we will need to sort of create, sort of here's what, here's what learning on primer, progress on primer, here's what primer pedagogy is. And, you know, if you sort of map to these, it's a good fit to work together. And if not, this is the place for you.
No, that's super, super cool. Do you actually have a 16th century English literature club or is that just illustrative? We actually have two kids or one kid, I think, that, that was writing something about 16th century English literature, but I do not think it has morphed into a club yet now. Uh, okay, that's, that's awesome. So I'm curious like what you've learned over the last few years of doing this. Anything surprising or any way that your thesis has evolved? Obviously, you've had to respond to the shifting realities of the pandemic and then not the pandemic, but just in terms of like what homeschoolers need or what you're able to offer them, anything's unexpected or any, any pivots? I think maybe the most interesting and humbling thing has been just how hard it is to build products for kids. I'm a longtime sort of tech founder, product guy, and it's just it's it's significantly more difficult to build products that are engaging for kids, specifically if you don't want them to be overly gamified and sort of condescending and pedantic. And that that's been, I think, a unique challenge from a sort of maybe more interesting perspective for this conversation. I think the other thing that's been really fascinating is how quickly any sort of ideology political affiliation, religion, any of those things just drop away when you talk to a parent. If they're dissatisfied with their kid's current education, there's a sense of desperation from so many of these parents that sort of regardless of what they do in their day job or what you would expect they might believe about school choice or alternative education or whatever it might be, if their kid is in a bad educational environment, they will do anything to try to find a better place for them. And so that's been some of the most fascinating conversations. I've had people reach out to me expecting they wanted to give me all this negative feedback because they were you know, a lobbyist against school choice or something for the last 10 years. And actually, they're asking for advice for what they should do with their kid because they're in a really, really bad situation, asking if I know anybody that lives in the Virginia area that might be able to help. And so I think that's been one of the most fascinating things for me is that at the speed at which this can transcend, uh, when it comes to a personal level from like a political or a worldview or an ideological thing to where all that just fades away. And actually just most parents, I think deep down, just want great educations for their kids. And that's why I'm so bullish on what you all are doing, what we're doing, because I think that as we free these parents, like the sort of political, the current thing, as is often talked about in Clubhouse, will sort of fade away and none of that will matter yeah. because parents ultimately just want their kids to have a great education. Can I just opine about that for a second and then you can yeah. respond? So, I mean, there's a way that that is a political point. Like, I mean, you can, you can kind of view it as like your mom, you know, like she wrote a paper arguing that homeschooling should be illegal, but that she changed her mind. But that is a mind change. It's not just like it fades away. Mm. It's like insofar as somebody was skeptical of school choice and now they find themselves in the position of making choices about their kid's education and thinking that that's a good thing to do and taking responsibility for it. Like you can see that as politically neutral, but it's politically neutral in the, in the way that like when gay marriage became legal because like enough people on the right finally knew somebody in their personal lives who was openly gay. And, and it's like, that's not a neutral thing. It's like, uh, um, it's not ideologically driven necessarily. So it's not like flowing from first principles about what they think that society should be. But that is like the responsibility for educating your kid lies with the parent. That's not a small thing. So I don't have a question there, but yeah, I, I think what you think of that. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think so. I think my point was maybe more around the sort of dissonance between stated versus revealed preferences. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is maybe where what I was targeting. But I think you're correct in that maybe one way to to square up those two points is that I think I believe that the the dissonance between stated versus revealed preferences will close, you know, in the coming years as it sort of becomes more families just get pragmatic about this and say, hey, this system is broken. Like this isn't working. And we can, you know, act like we're all cool with it to, you know, maintain party lines or whatever. But ultimately it's not working and we need to figure it out. I hope that there'll be more of those kind of conversations that just sort of are rooted in pragmatism. And to your point, that is a political shift, but I, I'm hopeful that that's what's gonna happen. Yeah. And I think that there's a history, a recent history in education. Like if you look at education over the last 50 years, even since Brown v. Board or even going back to the early 20th century, 
like that is a thing that happens where parents are kind of, they might say one thing about education or believe one thing about politics or society or the role of children, and then they're mortified by what's happening with their children. And they make some sort of dramatic, they do something dramatically different from what their stated preferences were. I generally think that that's, that's actually a healthy thing. Like that, totally. that, that, that's kind of like, yeah, your children, your children matter a lot to you. And so that actually yeah. surfaces your real values. You know? And they should matter more than your politics or whatever show you have to keep up. Yeah. Or they should matter more than like what, what your political views were yesterday. You're willing to change your mind over it. It's, it's like, obviously you're, you're kind of willing to kind of be reality oriented with your kids. And, and that's, totally. that's just, it's high virtue. We should probably open it up to the chat, to the kind of audience. If anybody wants to raise their hands and ask questions, but I'm going to keep going until somebody else raised their hand because there's a, I have a long list here. So I don't know if you have kind of really worked out views on this, but just kind of intimating from what you've said today and from what I've heard you say elsewhere and from what I know about Primer, you're, you're kind of in the alternative pedagogy space. Like not that you necessarily think that students should be like constructing every single element of their experience that you're going on the radical unschooling direction, but just in the kind of general scheme of things that children are learning how to be more independent, that they're learning how to learn, that they're kind of learning soft skills as well as hard skills, that they're kind of reflecting philosophically more and more as they get older. Is that is that an accurate characterization? Yeah, I think we, I mean, our, our view is that there is value in like traditional academics is not this sort of, like, like we're, not, we're not sort of anti-traditional academics. We are anti, you know, the entirety of, of a child's school structure and education structure being around five subjects with no time for them to, you know, sort of explore freely. And so I think Primer at its best drives sort of a hybrid approach where you still have the core academics, but you have this time to go deep on the things that each kid is excited about. And do you have a view as to, like, is there a certain approach that you think you should take to the core academics that's like a little bit more traditional or direct or structured, and then you kind of ease up on the structure and the time that you're not doing that? Or are you kind of still working out your views on that? Or are you neutral on that question? Yeah, so we are, I mean, Primer has been almost entirely supplementary or what most parents besides unschoolers would probably consider supplementary to date. And so with micro schools, we are, we're starting to work that out. And so I think that how I would sort of express the current iteration of where we're at is that the core academics will look to a parent, they will feel like this is congruent with their understanding of what education should be. We're not asking parents to sort of like take some bet on some crazy new model that they're worried about. It's going to like hurt their kids, you know, chance to get into high school or something. But It'll be structured sort of in a much more high agency way that might look more like a college course structure where there's a yep. few live experiences each week. There's lots of time for kids to do, whether it's practice problems for math or reading selections of text that they're excited about for history or whatever it might be. There's time for them to go deep sort of asynchronously with other kids, but at their own pace, uh, at their own interest level. And then it's, it's sort of always oriented around kids moving as fast as they can. And so in micro schools, it's a hybrid virtual and in-person model where kids, uh, most of the core academics happen virtually in sort of one to two hours a day while they're on site of the micro school. And that allows kids, you know, a third grader can be in fourth grade math, fifth grade math, sixth yep. grade math. It doesn't matter. They're not beholden to the lowest common denominator in their class like they are at most schools. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're talking about the future, which sounds like an awesome model. But do I understand you right that like right now there's kind of not clubs or interest groups or communities organizing around core academics so much. It's like mainly around supplementary education or what's called supplementary education. Yeah. I mean, the closest you would find is like a writing club where kids are, you know, improving writing skills, you know, in a way that would probably look fairly academic to most, to like a curriculum designer, but that's probably as close as you get. It, it doesn't like, you know, map to common core standards or Excel or any of that kind of stuff. That's interesting. A kind of related question, and this might shift over time, like if you start to kind of include more core academics or more kind of interface with more hybrid models, but 
How much do you think about the kind of parent-facing view of what kids are doing? So children are using the app, children are connecting with other children. Like, is the outcome of their learning communicated to parents, or is it just like you expect homeschoolers to be on top of that? Or how do you think about the issue of parents? Yeah, we are not as good as this at this right now as I would like to be. I really want to figure out ways to make what kids are doing on primary legible to parents, but because of the high agency nature of it, the distribution of what the artifacts look like is so wide, it's very hard to productize. And so some kids are writing books, they're going to publish on Amazon, other people are working art pieces, other people are doing recorded music, other people are coding apps. And so the idea of some, you know, sort of easily uh, digestible dashboard or email digest of what your kid is working on is, is actually quite difficult. So we're trying to figure this out. We haven't cracked the code, but I do feel very strongly that that this is like a key thing for us to for us to figure out. We with micro schools, it will be it'll be a lot of it will be manual to start between the teachers and the parents. But I'm actually really excited about. I, I think like there's there's an opportunity to create a bridge between parents and kids that doesn't exist today, where kids feel the sort of the agency and the excitement, almost like they're playing a video game. But it's something that is actually very natural to engage with siblings, friends, parents, grandparents on, like a book that you're writing that you might want feedback on or a book that you're like, we have kids, 12 year olds publishing books on Amazon. That's something that like parents would be really excited to know that that's happening and might not know it's happening. We need to figure that out, but we just frankly have not cracked that code yet. Yeah, we're very much in the same place in our programming. So, but yeah, that's awesome. And, the, and those ideas sound awesome. Carolyn Wilson in the chat says, could Ryan expand on why it is hard to build for kids? Is it creating and sustaining engagement? Is it creating an intuitive interface, something else? So you, you mentioned earlier that yeah. it was kind of, it was like, whoa, like this is a hard problem, like building something for kids. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think so. One is security and safety is obviously both extremely important and extremely difficult. Any online system that has kids on it is going to be targeted. And so there's just an enormous amount of work that has to go into making this space actually safe. And so that's one one piece of it. And, and that is it sort of often directly at odds with what you would consider to be best practices for like frictionless signup and frictionless engagement. You can't just let, you know, typically you would want to find the magic moment, which might be like meeting another kid or meeting another user and collaborating on a project. That would be the sort of North Star for anyone designing a sort of abstract online experience for people to meet and collaborate around their interests. You would say, let's get into that as fast as possible. Let's build an onboarding experience that dumps you straight into that in your first session within 30 seconds of signing up. You're like in a shared collaboration space, you know, talking about coding or whatever thing you're excited about. Well, when there's kids, making it as frictionless as possible, it allows people to exploit this for nefarious purposes. And so you actually can't do that. And so it's just a very difficult tension that you have to have on the safety side. And then the other side of it is that kids are often much harder to get in touch with for feedback. Now, when you do get in touch with them, their feedback is amazing because they're not worried about hurting your feelings. They just speak openly and freely. And so it's incredible. I did a Zoom with, with a 12-year-old in Ireland today that was that's gave me some feedback. But it's very, it's you know it's not as easy as just sending out a user survey and saying, hey, we'll give you a $50 Amazon gift card to fill out these questions. It's just a lot more complex to get feedback from kids. And so I, that makes the iteration cycle a little bit tougher. So those are the two things that I think make it substantially more difficult than a sort of a traditional uh, application. Thank you. Very clarifying. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I, I don't know how much you, you've experienced this, I think you mentioned this early on when you were telling your story, but just in education, if you're actually looking at learning, not just like, what was your experience like today and how engaging was it, but kind of like long-term learning, like what is the child getting out of this? How is it affecting their character? It's a kind of slower development cycle, naturally. Not that there aren't things totally. that you can't do to accelerate it, but it's just like, you might come to a different conclusion about the value of an experience after six months than you do after two days, you know, and that totally. is just a kind of gradual thing. 
we have James, you're raising your hand. I've invited you up, but until you click yes, I will continue asking my questions. One thing I'll, one, one interesting yeah. just addition to what you just shared is that I think the other, another interesting challenge is that the typical North Stars for the average tech product are things like engagement, time on site. Like these are the things that yeah. you, you know, sort of obsess over. But that's actually, to your point, those things do not necessarily map to actual progress, academic outcomes, learning outcomes for kids that we care about. And in many cases, actually might actually be at odds with those things. And so we have this very weird dynamic from a growth and engagement perspective where we've shipped features that have massively increased engagement and massively increased time on site. And we actually decided to roll them back because they're increasing all of our numbers, quote unquote, in the right direction, but they're actually not driving the learning outcomes that we want. And in some ways, we want people to get off primer and go start doing the things and be in the real world and work on these projects. And so I think that's another unique thing that's maybe not specific to kids, but is specific to designing learning experiences in general. Yeah, I mean, there are these odd things in technology, like I think like dating apps are the purest example of this. Like the most successful dating app is one that you use once and then you never use it again, right? Like, totally. like that. And it's like, what are you measuring then? How are you optimizing for that? Like, what do you kind of do when somebody like loves the app and comes back over and over again? You're like, crap, my app is failing. Like, I mean, there's a kind of similar dynamic, I mean, different, but similar dynamic in thinking about educational engagement. Are you willing to share something that you implemented that you decided to roll back? I'm curious. Yeah. We've done it. We've experimented a lot with how kids, how kids can invite other kids into experiences and also how kids can interact and give feedback with other kids. And so things like different commenting structures, being able to react with like an emoji to something that someone wrote or worked on. So we used to have this ability that you could add these emojis to different things people would post as a way to like encourage them or share that, hey, I saw this, like I'm excited about it. And we rolled that back and TBD if we'll keep it, but rolled that back because it was, it was resulting in a lot of kids that previously might have added some sort of substantial feedback or a compliment or a criticism or something of, of the work that would have been actually really, really good for the, a dialogue that could have emerged. And instead, they were just you know dropping a like on it or a heart on it or something. And so that's an example of something we rolled back, even though like it looked like our engagement was skyrocketing. I think it's actually you know far less valuable for a kid. I, I would substitute 20 like reactions on a post for one you know sort of substantial comment asking a question about the work or for feedback or something. So there's a lot of things like that, that sort of, you know, we're trying to optimize for the leading indicators of what will result in these learning outcomes we want, which are things like, you know, asking good questions, having a healthy debate, giving good feedback, those kind of things. You know, what's just occurred to me is that you are trying to solve the social media problem to some extent. I mean, I have a friend, Brian Amherst, who's working on a kind of, he's kind of bootstrapping a small social media network called Thoughtful. And he's like, very different approach to comments and likes it, like there basically aren't likes it's like you can recommend mm-hmm. something but the recommendation is not a fast thing and you have to write a little comment and i mean it sounds like i mean he, oh, has, very he cool. has a whole he has, a, he has like a whole way of thinking about like kind of what counts as a worthwhile engagement and he just doesn't enable other engagements because he feels like they compete and i think that's part of the idea and it, it seems like you're facing i don't know if you think of primer as a social networking app probably not i haven't heard you describe it that way at least but you kind of face a structurally similar problem there in terms of quality engagement yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, I think we, we get to ask this question a lot and I, like, are you building social networking for kids? And that's, that is not the goal of Primera. But I think if you're built, if you're trying to build an internet native learning experience for kids with other kids, there's going to be components of it that feel like social media. And so we, in some ways we can't run away from those problems. We have to run at them and they're just really hard problems to solve. Yeah. So I'll ask you one more question. And then if nobody wants to chime in from the audience, we can end. And if people do want to chime in, I'll stay as long as you guys, as long as you're willing to, Ryan. So something that I've found both when I was a college professor, not so much when I was a preschool teacher, but definitely in K-12 education too, is that children 
students vary tremendously in terms of their starting point for being able to kind of identify and ambitiously pursue an interest to begin with. And so if, if you kind of think about like the student who is like going to find that one other student who is really interested in 16th century English literature, coding or writing club or all these things that you've talked about, like, do you think about how do you help students bootstrap that sort of interest in the first place? Like if a student, or, or do you expect students to kind of come in with a certain level of interest or one of the main challenges or one of the main jobs of education is to help children who actually aren't that good at that. I don't think that it's true that all children just naturally have interest and curiosity, at least not by the time that we get to them. Like, do you think about kind of building that skill or the capacity to kind of value greatly or to kind of find and pursue an interest as part of your province? Or are you like finding children who already have that capacity and like really giving them rocket fuel for it? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I, I mean, the honest answer is that we have not cracked that nut yet. So, we talk a lot. We actually just had a meeting about this today. I think I think about it kind of like laddering, where the optimal experience would be one where a kid can come in with some interest. So if you just assume the most mainstream interest a 12-year-old might have could be Minecraft or sports or whatever the thing is. And from that interest, they could ladder into other interests that might you know sort of more directly impact their learning journey or their life experiences. And so, you know, I think about there's parents on Primer that have done this for their kids that I've heard of where a kid loves sports and that the parent sort of helps them realize how important statistics is or physics is for sports. And that becomes the gateway for them getting excited about these more foundational things like physics or statistics or math. And similarly, their kid loves Minecraft. They say, hey, you, you know, you can actually build Minecraft mods. Like there's actually this language and you can type things and you can actually modify what happens in, in the Minecraft world. And they sort of like, they don't say, hey, do you want to learn how to code? They say, hey, do you want to learn how to make your Minecraft world cooler? And I think there's this sort of optimal experience of Primer would productize that experience for kids. So the most sort of like, whatever you want to call it, mainstream 12-year-old could log on to Primer Maybe the only thing they would consider themselves interested in is baseball or Minecraft. And over the course of six months, they could discover these derivative or related things that are maybe more foundational interests that they realize they're really you know, authentically excited about. And so that's my dream. And it's, it's largely born out of like my own experience and what I know other parents have done for their kids. But it's obviously an extremely difficult problem to solve and requires a massive maze of, of interests. And how do you move kids through that? But that's sort of like five years from now, if, if we could do that, I would be really excited. That's a difficult problem to solve, but it's also not, it's not so far afield from the kinds of problems that it seems like technologists these days are very good at solving. Like the challenge of like how to keep you engaged on YouTube, where it's like, you like this video, and so we are going to recommend this video. It's like totally. what we need is a kind of pedagogical version of that. It's like, you're interested in this thing, and so right. we're going to deepen that interest with this other thing, or we're going to like advance that interest or give you prerequisites for being interested in something else, jump, you know, like use this as a prerequisite for being interested in something else. Like it's different in that it's it's not just kind of like brute force linear regression on what engagement tends to follow what other engagement, but it's, I mean, that is, it feels like a similar genre of problem. Yep. It's absolutely very hard, but absolutely solvable. The other thing that I was thinking as you were talking is, I mean, one of my views of education is that um, education is sales, like to the student. Mm -hmm. It's like, Part of the job of the educator is like, oh, like you don't think you're a math person? Like I'm going to like I consider it my job to like sell you on math and, and mm. convince you that there's no such thing as not being a math person and maybe not in so blunt and direct a way as like I'm gonna lecture at you and sell at you, but like in implicit and subtle ways and like you are kind of sparking interest in the things that you think really matter. And I wonder if there's something similar I mean, I'm just musing here. I wonder if there's something similar that can emerge on Prime over time where it's like 
like you sell children on different categories of interest. You don't just not necessarily assuming that they're kind of coming in like, oh, you're interested in Minecraft and so you'll be interested in coding. But like, is there a kind of like sales pitch or general sales pitch or a few different sales pitches for like coding for a seven-year-old that you that just like are really effective and get children kind of interested in coming to a club for a few days, you know? Totally. And I think yeah. if you can do that, the dream would be if that doesn't have to be done by primer, but they can actually see other yeah. kids' journeys. And another kid's yeah, yeah, journey yeah. is legible, going from someone who loved playing Minecraft for five hours a day to someone who's now loves coding. That If you can make that journey legible through artifacts and through visualizing their progress, that's where it gets really exciting because then Primer doesn't have to sell them. They can have this true intrinsic motivation by interacting with other kids and seeing what their journey looked like. Yeah, I mean, the social element there is just going to work in your favor. So that that's a super cool integration. Okay, let's stop here. So thank you so much, Ryan. This has been really, really fascinating for me. And I hope you enjoy your evening. Thank you so much. Awesome. Oh, Thanks so, so much, if, Matt. I, 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 oh, I should ask you, like, just to shill, like, primer.com, is that where people go? Or join primer, is it? Yeah, primer.com. I'm at Delk on Twitter. Happy to help chat. I'm always open. Anything that I can do, I'm always happy to happy to help however I can. Yeah, so primer.com. And definitely, Ryan's a good follow on Twitter, so at Delk. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you guys again soon. Awesome. Bye, Thanks, everyone. everyone.